0: Today's passage will be Luke twenty, twenty seven through forty. There came to him some Sadducees, those who deny that there is the resurrection, and they asked him a question, saying, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies, having a wife but no children, the man must take a widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Now there are seven brothers. The first took a wife and died without children, and the second and a third who took her, and likewise all seven left no children and died. Afterwards, the woman also died. In the resurrection, therefore, whose wife will the woman be? For the seven had her as a wife. And Jesus said to them, The sons of this age marry and are given in marriage, but those who are considered worthy to attain to that age and to the resurrection from the dead neither marry nor are given in marriage. For they cannot die any more, because they are equal to angels and are sons of God, being sons of the resurrection. But well, that the dead are raised, Even Moses showed in the passage about the bush where he calls the Lord, the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. Now he is also not God of the dead, but of the living for all live to him. Then some of the scribes answered, teacher, you have spoken well, for they no longer dared to ask him any questions.
1: Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for your sacrifice for allowing us to have a redemption from our sins, salvation from our sins because of what you did on the cross and resurrecting from the dead. And God, just as Jen was symbolic of that, of dying to the old self and raising anew, may you do that with each one of our hearts, Lord, with all of our minds. May you speak through your word this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Luke chapter 20. If you're new here, uh, the way we kind of study the Bible is just through the Bible. I hear this often where someone's saying like, oh, you did that just for me or, uh, you know, uh, that counseling appointment. You're not supposed to bring that up when you're preaching and all this kind of stuff. I am just going through the Bible. So if it's specifically for you, it's not me. It's the Holy Spirit working in your life because I believe that he's dynamic and he does that. And so here we are in verses 27 through 40 is what we're going to be talking about this morning. And so today, we'll take a look at this third trick question in chapter 20 that the religious leaders had for Jesus. And the first one can be found back in verse 2 where it reads this, Tell us by what authority you do these things or who it is that gave you this authority. And Jesus responded to them and then went on to tell this parable that really angered them. And then we find this emotional displeasure from the religious leaders in verse 19. The scribes and the chief priests sought to lay hands on him at that very hour, for they perceived that he had told this parable against them, but they feared the people. Then we get to the second question in chapter 20 in verses 20 through 21. And they're from these spies because they can't get Jesus kind of overtly so they're trying to get him covertly and they ask this teacher we know that you speak and teach rightly and show no partiality but truly teach the way of god is it lawful for us to give tribute to caesar or not jesus answered them really brilliantly and this is the response that luke recorded for us from the religious leaders in verse 26 and they were not able in the presence of the people to catch him in what he said but marveling at his answer they became silent Now, if you have any questions in regards to previous sermons, we can be found on iTunes, and you just kind of load that up and listen to it. Now, the questions asked weren't aimed at understanding or learning. They were aimed to corner Jesus so that they could get rid of Jesus. And just because they failed a couple of times to entrap Jesus didn't mean that they were going to give up. And so here come the Sadducees. And the Sadducees were a different Jewish sect from the Essenes or from the Pharisees, a a different sect. And they were a group that did not believe in the resurrection of the dead. So, as a childhood tool that I shared with you last week and I'll share with you this week, they did not believe in the resurrection, so therefore they were sad, you see. They did not believe in the resurrection. So, the Pharisees as well as the Christ followers and the Essenes, they believed in the resurrection. So, The resurrection is a key tenet to the Christian faith, and it's different from the Sadducees. And so these guys are the next wave of folks who are trying to throw Jesus off kilter, and their intent is to ridicule the doctrine of the resurrection. And in their argument, they're referring back to Deuteronomy chapter 25, verses 5 through 9. Let me read that for us. If brothers dwell together and one of them dies and has no son, the wife of the dead man shall not be married outside the family to a stranger. Her husband's brother shall go into her and take her as his wife and perform the duty of a husband's brother to her. And the first son whom she bears shall succeed in the name of his dead brother, that his name may not be blotted out of Israel." And if the man does not wish to take his brother's wife, then his brother's wife shall go up to the gate to the elders and say, My husband's brother refuses to perpetuate his brother's name in Israel. He will not perform the duty of a husband's brother to me. Then the elders of his city shall call him and speak to him. And if he persists, I do not wish to take her. And that's kind of how it wraps up there. And this is what happened in the book of Ruth between Boaz and Ruth. If you remember back there, if you read chapter 4, we're going to get to it at some time. I don't know when. We believe in the whole counsel of God. We'll get to the book of Ruth sometime. I just can't promise you when because we were in the book of Luke for like three years now. So I'm sorry. But this is what Boaz did to keep and continue the honor of his brother. It wasn't his direct brother, but of a person named Elimelech, a relative of his. And so someone was in line from Elimelech. So he had to go to the elders and plead his case and say, do you want to do this or not? And that brother didn't. So then he was like, oh, so I'll do it. So if a brother did not do it, then a closest relative could marry the widow. And so that's what Boaz was. He was the closest relative. He wasn't the brother. And so the first son of that new marriage would continue the name, would continue the honor, would continue the lineage of the deceased. Now keep in mind that by the time Luke 20 rolls around here, this custom of marrying your brother's widow was no longer practiced. They didn't practice it anymore. Okay, So practically speaking, this was a dead non-issue. This is something that happened back then and it wasn't brought up to now. No one was doing it. So this is merely an intellectual, philosophical, what-if debate at this point. Right? And it's for the sake of argument. And you guys get this all the time, don't you? I got this from my cousin the other day. You really believe that Jonah could be in a fish for three days? It's like, come on. Are you kidding me? That's like so long. You're like bringing that... It's just, it's kind of, it's just for the sake of argument. Verses 27-30 through 30 in Luke chapter 20. There came to him some Sadducees, those who deny that there is a resurrection. And they asked him a question saying, Teacher... Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies, having a wife but no children, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. What if? I added that. Now there were seven brothers. The first took a wife and died without children, and the second and the third took her, and likewise all seven left no children and died. Afterward, the woman also died. In the resurrection, if this is true... Therefore, whose wife will the woman be? For the seven had her as a wife. And so here's the third trick question in this chapter. And it's a question meant to point out how silly to believe in the Christian doctrine of the resurrection. That is so silly. That is so stupid. And this happens a lot today with many who claim to be scientists who believe that the belief of creation is silly or the belief of miracles is silly, or the belief of life after death is silly. Think about this. Some of the greatest scientists of all time, of all human history, were people who believed in such doctrines. Are you smarter than they are? People like Galileo Galilei, who was credited for heliocentrism. René Descartes a key thinker in the scientific revolution who did important work in geometry and invariance. Blaise Pascal. Have you heard of Pascal's law of physics? We still do that today. I remember that in my general physics class. Or Pascal's theorem in math. Math. Or Pascal's Wager in Theology, which is my favorite one, because this is where Pascal develops a philosophical Christian apologetic for the existence of God. Where Pascal works into it decision theory. He works into it probability theory. He is the father of those things. When we're talking about statistics and and logic and reasoning, he's the father of decision theory and probability theory. Isaac Newton... Regarded as one of the greatest scientists and mathematicians of all time, Louis Pasteur, a chemist, a microbiologist who solved rabies and anthrax and cholera, who contributed to the development of the first vaccines. He's the inventor of pasteurization, which I don't know if is a good thing or not, because I'm all hippie. I like raw milk and stuff. Anyway. But in more contemporary times, Francis Collins, He's the director of the National Institute of Health and the former director of the National Human Genome Research Institute. He's not a stupid guy, right? He wrote this brilliant article entitled Faith in the Human Genome where he reasons. He reasons for the literal and the historical resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. He wrote, The Language of God, A Scientist Presents Evidence for Belief. Read it. And those are just a few, a few brilliant scientific minds who are Christian and considered brilliant in any community, not just in the Christian community. And just as we believe in what many in the world view as silly or foolish or superstitious or mythological, so it was for the Sadducees who posed this question for Jesus. In the resurrection, therefore, whose wife will the woman be? For the seven had her as a wife. So what the Sadducees were attempting to employ was a common form of argument known as reductio ad absurdum. That's Latin for reduction to the absurdity. And this is where a theorem is disproved by reducing it to the absurd judging it by its final outcome because the final outcome is absurd. It's ridiculous. So therefore, it cannot be true. right? Where the belief can't possibly be true because the end result of those beliefs results in the absurd. So this is what they were trying to do. So in the argument presented by the Sadducees, they presented this scenario in which would end in a result that is ridiculous, absurd, because whose wife is she going to be? To seven husbands? That's so stupid. That's so silly. All seven. Really? You believe that? Ha ha ha. Silly Jesus. Right? They're just stupid Christians. You know? How asinine to believe in the resurrection because if it is true, what disorder there will be for a wife of seven husbands? Just utter chaos. Right? Can you imagine all of them fighting? And disagreeing about whose wife this is. Which is also why the Sadducees did not believe in an afterlife. If the resurrection is true, do the husbands have a battle royal in the middle of the Christian octagon? And whoever makes it out of the cage gets the woman. Is that what happens? So how does Jesus respond? Well, let's take a look at a response that Jesus gave them in Mark's Gospel. And that's in Mark chapter 12, verse 24. Is this not the reason you are wrong? Because you know neither the Scriptures nor the power of God. Ouch. You're stupid. Right? That's essentially what Jesus is saying. Dummy. Your questions come from ignorance. They come from naivety. Because it's obvious you haven't read your Bible. And you clearly have no understanding of who God is and what God is capable of. And this is the case in many of the arguments against the Christian faith today. When people have questions that are genuine and they are open, that is perfectly fine. And those questions are to be handled with gentleness and respect. And then there are those times when the questions are meant to corner us or meant to make us feel silly or make us feel stupid. That does not give us permission to treat them any differently with gentleness and respect. It's not, right? But what it does remind us of is how those antagonists, they really don't know the Bible. They really don't know God. They don't know the power of God. So in regards to the resurrection, this is a non-negotiable in Christianity. If Jesus died and did not resurrect, we have no victory over sin. Right? Sin won. And if Jesus never died, then you and I have no redemption of sin. There's no resurrection if there is no death. And if there is no death, there is no salvation from sin. So Jesus goes on to tell them, you're wrong. You're wrong. And He doesn't debate them. He just uses simple logic to show them that the way that their reasoning is going about the resurrection, it's wrong. Verses 34 and 35. And Jesus said to them, Luke 20, The sons of this age marry and are given in marriage. But those who are considered worthy to attain to that age and to the resurrection from the dead neither marry nor are given in marriage. Did you catch that about the ages in verses 34 and 35? This is important. The sons of this age, us, living right now, are given in marriage. But those who are considered worthy to attain that age, not this one, that one, And to the resurrection from the dead, neither marry nor are given in marriage. What does that mean? Well, life in heaven, that age, will have things that are familiar with us right now, but it's not going to be exactly the same. They're going to be drastically different. There are elements of familiarity, but it's going to be very different. For example, our relationships. Our relationships on earth are dependent on place and time. Right here in this place. Aren't they? But in that age, in that place, in heaven, place and time don't apply. It doesn't apply. Place and time no longer play a role in heaven, whereas relationships on earth, place and time have a role. Where are we and what time is it? It always has something here. We're at church, but it's almost time for lunch, right? So yeah, I know, I'm almost done. So our relationships on earth are bound by place and time, but not so in that age, in everlasting. That's not to say that we won't recognize one another. There's some things that are going to be familiar. The resurrected Jesus was recognized by His disciples, weren't they? And so that of the Spirit is different from the flesh, even though there are elements of similarity. This is what Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, starting in verse 9. The spiritual person judges all things, but is himself to be judged by no one. For who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. Continuing on in Luke chapter 20, let's pick up in verses 34 and 35 again, because I want to pick out a phrase out of verse 35. And Jesus said to them, The sons of this age marry and are given to marriage, but those who are considered worthy to attain to that age and to the resurrection from the dead neither marry nor are given in marriage. Now the phrase that I want to kind of pick out is to the resurrection from the dead. From the dead. Why do I want to pick this out? Because death is inevitable. From the dead. Everybody dies. Has anyone ever known anyone to have lived forever? Forever. Anybody? There are some people I look at and I wonder sometimes. You know, like, you've been here a while, but we all die, right? And the destination is either heaven or hell. Those are your choices, just two destinations. And for those resurrected, that age, there's no marriage. You're like, what? Why? Some of you are like, yay. <laughs> But marriage isn't necessary anymore. You're immortal. And so marriage is a mortal thing. If you are one of those that are cheering, like, yay, no more marriage, and you're married, maybe we need to talk. Okay? So just want to throw that out there that we should talk. But marriage is an unnecessary thing in heaven because the biology behind procreation is no longer necessary. Right, You no longer need that. And just as other biological processes will be unnecessary, you won't experience hunger. You won't experience thirst. And that's because the biology behind those things, they don't exist anymore. You are spiritual. You're not physical. And you won't experience death in heaven because there is no biology behind an organism dying. Verse 36, For they cannot die anymore your cells are not dying anymore. For they cannot die anymore because they are equal to angels and are sons of God being sons of the resurrection. Immortality. So right now we are bound by place and time, but in the resurrected life, that age, there are no bounds of place and time. Right now we are bound by the limitations of mortality, but not so in the resurrected life. But the Sadducees did not believe in the resurrection, so they had this limited view of the power of God. And Jesus told them, you're wrong. You're wrong. Verses 37-38, But that the dead are raised, even Moses showed in the passage about the bush where he calls the Lord the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. Now He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. For all live to Him. Now, Jesus was referring back to the Scriptures, and every one of the three patriarchs mentioned here, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, they were long, long, long dead by the time we find Moses speaking to the bush in Exodus chapter 3, verse 4. They've been dead a while, yet God promised to save His people. So, what good is God's promise if it means nothing after death? If death was going to be victorious over His promise to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, what good is the promise if it just ends with their death? So with Abraham, God told him, Abraham, you know, leave everything that's familiar to you. I make a covenant with you. And I promise you that you will have an inheritance and all your nations, they will be blessed. Now what eventually happened to Abraham? He died. He physically died. If that is the end, period... What good is the promise of God? What good is the covenant of God without a resurrection? It would be an empty promise to Him. That would be it. Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, starting in verse 12, Now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, if in Christ we have hope in this life only, not that one, this one, we are of all people most to be pitied. Understand what Paul wrote? If death is the ultimate end, period, that's it. Your switch is off. Life is futile. It means nothing. Life would just be a big joke. What is the point? What is the purpose, goal of life if that is it? How could we live our last days on earth? Right? You're past your prime. You're kind of over the hill and you're coming down. Right? I'm not going to put an age to it though. You're, you're just coming down. You're coming in for the landing. Right? You're coming in for the landing. What hope is there? I could see the hope if you're going up. You know, in your 20s and your 30s. And I'll stop there. And then whenever the peak is and you're starting to come down, um, where's your hope? If you turn the corner. There's no more hope. That sounds like despair. Right? Hope, despair, not the case with Christ. It's all hope. It's all hope. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. Most to be pitied. Isn't that sad? Continuing on Luke chapter 20, verse 39. Then some of the scribes answered, Teacher, you have spoken well. For they no longer dared to ask him a question. The scribes said this. Isn't that amazing? I mean, if you've been with us for the past several weeks, you'd find this amazing because we were talking about the anger building up and the yarmulke just blowing off because they're so mad and heated. And teacher, you have spoken well. After all this, like we want to lay our hands on Him we want to kill Him and all this stuff. Teacher, you've spoken well. No more questions. No more from the Pharisees who who knew the Scriptures and who knew the power of God, but yet they still didn't believe. No more from the Sadducees who didn't know the scriptures, who didn't know the power of God. But let's address those of us who do believe, who do know the scriptures and the power of God, and we also trust in Jesus. I want to ask you a question. How are you doing? Are you living like this? Or are you living that you know you have hope? You know? How are you doing? Are you like first Peter chapter three, verse fifteen? Always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect. If there is one word that characterizes a Christian, this word is at the top of that list. Hope. Hope. That's what Paul wrote about in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 12-13. and 13. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, in Jesus Christ, you who were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Hope is what Peter wrote about in 1 Peter chapter 1. Verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. The followers of Jesus, we experience the same challenges in this world. We experience the same physical death as everyone else. But because of the death of Jesus Christ on the cross, His burial in a tomb that was later to be found empty, because of His resurrection, implanted into every believer of Jesus Christ is hope. Now, one of my responsibilities as a pastor is to prepare you for death. I know it's morbid, but it's one of my charges as a pastor, seriously, is to prepare you for death. Death. To assist you in living well, but also to dying well. Right? Living well and dying well. So, how do we live and die well? How do we do that? One of the things we have to do is we have to vigilantly train to die well. You're like, what? I have to train myself to die? Yes! The Olympics are happening right now, right? One of the premier events in the Olympics is the 100 meter sprint. And so these athletes are training six days a week, hours upon hours a day, and they eat right, and they sleep enough hours, and they recover, and all the nutrition and all the work, everything is is scientifically done, and everything's done. And all of that work for what? Less than 10 seconds. All of that work for less than... 9.64? Is that the record now that Usain Bolt did? No, we don't watch it anyway, do we? (laughs) Less than 10 seconds. All of that work. Thousands of hours for less than a 10-second race. To do well, you need to train. And you need to prepare well, even if it's just this flash. Like death. Death is... You're dead. It's less than 10 seconds. Hopefully, right? You're like, please, please, God, listen 10 seconds. (laughs) For those of you who aren't athletes or like, oh, stupid example. What about weddings? Because usually, like, if you don't like athletics, you like weddings. So let's use weddings. (laughs) For some of you, not a big deal. You're an Olympics type of person, right? So not a big deal. But there are others who, weddings are a big thing. You've been preparing since you were little, And you put a lot of preparation into it. I have a friend who's an event planner for a world-class resort. If I gave you the name, you would all know it, but very few of us could afford it. And so for her to plan your wedding, it would cost minimum in the 10,000s, and it can go well into the hundreds of thousands, depending on what you wanted her to do for you. Now, some of her preparations take more than a year. More than a year. Like she has to grow certain plants because someone wants a specific thing. Like, Isn't that crazy? It's just so crazy. This is what she has to do. More than a year. So for what? A six to eight hour thing? Right? That's it. Really? That's it. Hundreds of thousands of dollars? Six to eight hours? If you threw one of those, I would gladly come though. I would enjoy it. I would go to your party for that. But she gets paid bank to plan this stuff. And she puts in over 40 hours a week. 40 hours in a week for an entire year to work for these bridezillas for like six to eight hours. Thousands of hours, right? Just thousands of hours. Decor and, and flowers and linens and lighting and draping and food and drink and photographer and makeup and filmmaking and music, entertainment, hair, invitations, parking, furnishings, clothing. Am I missing anything? Stuff. Six hours. That's it. Why? And there are other things too. Like graduation. You ever think about this? Most of us have gone through this. All that work. Hours upon hours. Years of study. Years of research papers and papers. To walk across a stage and pick up a piece of paper. Why do we train that hard and prepare so diligently for these ending events that are just a like fraction of time? Just, that's it. Because it's not just a race. It is not just a wedding day. It is not just a piece of paper. Those are milestones representing our life lived well. Right? And for those moments of work, you are sold out. You are sold out to the end of event, whether it's a race, a marriage, a graduation, and the same is for death. It's quick. May we have nothing else distracting us. May our moments of work help us to do nothing else but to die when that time comes. That's it. Nothing stops death. Nothing. And when it comes, you have no choice but to be ready. Nothing stops it. But what do you have to address before you die Here, in this place. Because you don't want to live life with regret. Right? What haven't you said to someone? What haven't you done for someone? What are the disappointments in your life? You need to address them. And some of the regrets and some of the disappointments, they may not be things that are good for you to be acting upon. Maybe. You have to figure that out. And if that is the case... You need to figure out how you're going to deal with those things in a healthy way. You're going to have to figure out how you're going to grieve about those things in a healthy way. Right? That guy, I always wanted to marry him, and I wanted, to, but he's married to someone else and he has children. You ever regret not marrying him? You're going to have to grieve the loss. Sorry. You cannot go, but I loved you. No, 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 no. Move on. Right? You've you got to grieve it. You've got to move on. And so there are issues of unforgiveness, of bitterness, of resentment that are in your life. Have you received forgiveness from Jesus? Have you received the forgiveness of sins from Jesus? Now we prepare for death because death is inevitable. We don't know anyone that has lived forever, right? Everyone dies, so we have to train for it. We have to prepare for it. So do your loved ones know how your memorial service is to go? Just some practical things here. Do you have a will or do you have a trust? Do you have provision for your family if you're no longer around? See, there are a lot of people with young children here. Right In the past, I think, year and a half, our children's ministry for early childhood has doubled. Do you have life insurance? I'll just pause there. Maybe not universal life, you know, it's really expensive and all this, but do you have term until your children are old enough to take care of themselves? And if you don't have those preparations ready, don't procrastinate. You need to take care of it now. You you do not know when your last breath is. You don't know. And you might have some excuses like, you know, I can't afford it or I'm fine, I'm really healthy and all this. Whatever your excuses are, are you ready to die? Because the car coming across that's not stopping at a red light does not care if you didn't buy your policy yet. And you can be completely healthy, but it doesn't count. How will your family be taken care of if you die? You have to train for it, you have to prepare for it. And if you can't afford it, let's talk. Let's talk. You can probably cut your cable. If you cut your cable, some of those bills are about the same price as a premium. Right? So, you know, we can talk about it. You have to prepare for your death. And if in our preparation of death, God is simultaneously preparing us for a life everlasting. So how does God prepare us for life everlasting with Him, which is essentially heaven? Right? Being with God is heaven. Well, God allows us to experience less favorable things. Things like pain. Things like suffering and hurt and sorrow, and grief, and illness. Why? Why does God do that? I I thought that we were supposed to be content with everything. Yes, we are supposed to be content. As followers of Jesus, we can find contentment even though we experience suffering, pain, sorrow, grief. But in that suffering, even though we are content, we have a yearning for something more, don't we? If we were not tied down to earth by our mortality, by our suffering, we wouldn't have a desire for something more. You'd be totally happy. You'd be fine. You wouldn't miss anything, right? It, it, everything's fine. So we'd be totally content to have things as they are, but, but we all know that there is something more. We all want something more. Whether you follow Jesus or not, whether you are an atheist or an agnostic, you know that there is something more. Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verse 11, it reads this, He, God, has put eternity into man's heart. He put it there. We all know that there is unfinished business on earth, right? We all know that. That justice has not been fully served because Stalin is responsible for killing 10 to 60 million people and he just died a regular death in his 60s or something like that. That's it? Are you kidding me? He killed tens of millions of people. Hitler was responsible for tens of millions of deaths before he just bit into a cyanide pill and shot himself. He wanted to make sure that he killed himself. But where's the justice? That's it? He killed himself and that's it? He was responsible for their deaths and that's it? No. God forbid that justice will not be served for those people. For that evil. And there is hope for an eternity for God to address those injustices that we think, did they get away with that? That's all? He just shot himself? That guy that went into that Sikh mosque and just shot those people and then he killed himself? That's it? Really? No. Yet God allows suffering in order to make us ready. To make us expectant of things to come. He allows suffering to show us how vain our present life is. The vanity of our present life. You ever wonder about peace? Because I get this sometimes. If peace is real, and if God is real, then where's the peace? shouldn't everything be peaceful the ultimate peace will not be found in this age it's in that age right it's not here we'll get glimpses of peace and we work for it as peacemakers because we are christians and we believe in peacemaking but the ultimate peace is only found in that age with god it's not found in this age and we are allowed to experience war Conflict, hostility in order to make us ready and expectant for peace in that age. You ever wonder about excellence? If God is so great, then how come not everyone's the same thing? How come we're not all born the same way with the same physical attributes and mental attributes? How come things aren't excellent? Ultimate excellence is not found in this age. It's found in that age. We get glimpses of excellence, but the ultimate excellence will only be found with God in heaven in that age. And until then, we experience mediocrity. Us. Average. Right? You experience that. And I hate mediocrity, don't you? Americans hate it. Right? That's why we're in the Olympics. We're cheering like, oh yeah, you lost it. We hate average. I hate average. I hate ordinary. But I am. And I'm really looking forward to that. I'm so looking forward to that. See, God uses all of this to shape us by giving us this not yet aspect to us, right? I want peace. I want excellence. You're going to be there so that you can be expectant and you can prepare and you can get ready for that age. Because we all know that there's something more. See, God is in control and He's at work in our present life getting us ready for heaven, but will you humble yourself enough so that you may know and understand that for yourself? To recognize how God is shaping you for His purposes and shaping you so that you will feel at home in heaven. You'll feel at home there. If you're not ready, you're, you're going to feel really uncomfortable there. You're, you're not going to oh, this is so yucky. But God is in control. God is sovereign. Even when things don't make sense, like when people die young. Isn't that one just blows your mind? And those people are really good people. And they're just such a blessing. If you lost a young one in your life, you're just like wondering, what in the world? Like when Petey died for me, I just was like, God, I don't get it. And I think about him a lot. And I wonder, 36, God? And he had a ministry that was so effective and and he was helping a lot of people. But every person's life is a fulfilled destiny. It's a completed destiny. And even though I may think Petey would have brought more people to Jesus and he would have encouraged more people to know Jesus more like he did for me, that it was in God's plan for Petey to breathe his last breath. If our eyes are truly on that place, that age, that eternity, then we can't measure the accomplishment based on time and place in this age. And yes, 36 years seems short to us. It does. But what he accomplished in those 36 years was much more than folks I know who have lived twice as long. And there's teenagers I know that they died really, really young. I'm like, what in the world, God? And they were like a good kid. They did like a lot of good things. But they had a fulfilled destiny. They did it. Jesus only lived till 33. Right? See, time is not the real and accurate measurement of impact, of influence. It's not. Because if it was, look at stillborn babies. Look at babies who only live a few hours after they are born. And unfortunately, in my pastoral ministry, I've experienced both things. Where the family had a stillborn, or the baby was with the family only for a few hours because their organs weren't fully developed. And so the doctors, they knew that this was going to happen and just said, you know what, you're probably going to have about an hour for an interaction with your baby. And in one of the cases, fortunately, it was four hours. They were only given an hour, but the baby actually lived for four. Yet the stillborn, or the baby who only lived a few hours, think about the impact, think about the impression that they have left on their parents, their grandparents, their relatives. And they will forever touch their lives, forever. Every life serves a fulfilled destiny and it is not measured by time. See, we, we will not live a second less or a second more than what God purposes for our life. Now, how important is it to view death through the perspective of Jesus? Jesus said in Revelation chapter 1, verses 17 and 18, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died And behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. May we have our eyes on eternity, that age, so that we can prepare well and be ready as we approach our departure. And that when we're called home, that's all we need to do. We just go. We go home. As Christians, we believe in the immortality of the soul and the resurrection of the body. Right, Where death and pain and disease, they are no longer able to touch our bodies anymore. No more medications, no more therapy, no more cancer, no more arthritis, no more diabetes, no more Kaiser, you know, stuff like that. No more copays, no medical bills, none of that stuff. I mean, it's going to be glorious. Everything our bodies suffer from here on earth, this age, due to genetics or environment, abuses, war, famine, disease, whatever. No more. That's it. All will be restored. And we will be how it was supposed to be before sin. Which is what? Excellence. Excellence. No more mediocrity. Praise God. Imagine the best you. I can see wives like nudging their husbands like, why not you do that now? Like, you know, Because we're at this age. Chill out. We're that age. We're going to be the best us. Yeah, we're good. See, I look forward to the resurrected body the best me. Oh man. Thank you. Please get me there, right? And I'm also looking forward to the fellowship with the best you. Can you imagine? Right now you're fellowshipping with like broken people and you fight and you have wars and you have conflict and you like try to do things to each other and hurt each other. But can you imagine the best of each person getting together and how glorious that's gonna be? The best you meeting the best me. We're going to like each other. <laughs> Isn't that amazing? It's amazing. So may we help each other to realize the best of ourselves in Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for your promises. Lord, thank you for having us expectant of things to come in that age. Lord, may we not be caught up on the things of this age knowing that we have life everlasting. Lord, help us to be diligent and bold with sharing your gospel because people need to know not just that there is something because everyone is expectant because you've put eternal life on everyone's heart, but how to get there and who it is that is going to get them there. Jesus Christ. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.